Morning, everybody. Listen, I don't know if any of you were here last week when I was begging people to come to the service because I thought there were only going to be 12 people, yeah? But if you're here because of that, thank you for coming, man. You're my favorite people in the whole wide world, and I owe you one. All right. Great to have you with us. Happy New Year, everybody. And um, when we say that, because I'm sure you've said it a number of times already, because we believers, we must just remember that that's a prayer that we've just prayed. It's not a flick of a wand, you know, a magical wand, happy new year. No, it's a, may God bless you with happiness. May God bless you with an awesome, fantastic, great new year. That's my prayer for you, that all of you have a fantastic new year. For those that have um, chosen some new year's resolutions, as I've said before from this pulpit, I believe in those things. I really do. Well done on choosing some New Year resolutions. I, I fully believe in taking any opportunity to start afresh with some good, new, healthy habits. Um, so if you've chosen some healthy resolutions, well done. hope you do really well. I believe in them so much that I've even gone to the extent of just making sure that I've got a little loophole in regard to these. Did you know that the Orthodox New Year starts on the 14th of January and the Chinese New Year starts, I think, on the 28th of January. So the nice thing about that is if you find after the first few days that your New Year's resolutions are just maybe, you know, the bar's too high or it hasn't settled in your life quite as you expected, you get to reset in a couple of days' time. So enjoy that, man, and start all over again. Hopefully that's helpful to some of you. Seriously, though, I really do... Love this time of the year. Um, I find myself, maybe you do too, very naturally reflecting on my life. You know, thinking through the direction that I'm going in, the values that I hold, thinking about the way I spend my time, all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe it's because generally this, this is the time that my family and I generally take time off, a bit of leave. In fact, we're going on leave tomorrow. So, so there's naturally a bit more space to be reflective. You're not, you, know, you don't have the to-do list right in front of your face. You've got a bit of time to think about your priorities, think about how to hope my next year to pan out, reflect on those kind of good things. And one of the inevitable little moments, one of the inevitable questions that comes to mind during this time of reflection is that very obvious question, what does 2022 hold for me? What does it hold for you? What's 2022 going to be like? Be like? You know, looking backwards doesn't exactly breed confidence in the future. Certainly backwards in terms of the last two years. It doesn't fill you with confidence about this coming year. I mean, once we run, won that Rugby World Cup in 2019, the whole world has absolutely turned upside down. And maybe it's because we won the World Cup. I don't know. But so much about the world we live in has become almost unrecognizable compared to what happened a bunch of years ago. Our workspaces have changed radically, I think, for probably 80% of people. Um, our church life has changed. You know, our, our study spaces, my daughter's doing study. She's through varsity. It's such a different experience to what I went through. Um, our healthy habits, the use of masks and thermometers, the thought that the first time I ever wore a mask was two years ago. It's just bizarre to me. It feels like it's like 
always been around, you know. Um, even our home life has changed in the last two years somewhat. So to wonder how this coming year is going to pan out, it's almost an impossible task in this time of rapid change, isn't it? But maybe we approach this little exercise of trying to look into this coming year kind of badly. Maybe that's because generally as we think of the coming year, we try our best to predict what the coming year is going to be like. And, and you know, rather than, than focusing on the nature of the choices that will be presented with this coming year. And so we try the prediction game rather than trying to become wise about the coming year. Prediction, to be honest, is a lame game. Uh, there are some futurists that I know that do a very good job of it, but generally speaking, none of us can predict the future. Um, unless you're a prophet of note, and if so, then let me know. I'd love to touch base with you. So prediction is a, la- a lame game, but wisening up, becoming wise, thinking about how we make choices regardless of what the world throws at, throws at us. Now, that is a task that has more of a chance of making the coming year a success than any predictions we could make. And we're going to work our way back to that thought a little bit later in the sermon. I'm going to read through a passage of Scripture now, and I'm doing quite a bit of reading of the Bible over the next couple of moments. So just hang in there, enjoy the story, let it kind of you know, enter into your life and thought and imagination as we listen to what happened in these texts. So Mark chapter 6, verse 30 onwards, reads as follows. It's about Jesus feeding the 5,000. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Just a quick interlude there. They've just come back from a mission trip. Okay, One of the first mission trips I've ever been back, been on. They've just returned and they reported to Jesus all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, eat he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Jesus read the moment after mission trip, you are finished. You just want to unpack. You just want to eat. You want to rest. So Jesus read the moment and said, come, let's duck out of here. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them excuse me, and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large, large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so instead of resting, instead of settling down and hiding in a solitary place, he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. And so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very, very late. Maybe they're trying to find a way to get rid of these guys again. You know, it's a remote place and, and it's very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, here's the clangor. You give them something to eat. <clears throat> now, one of the best ways I've found to get to the meat of any text in the Bible is to find a question that makes you look deeper into the passage of Scripture. Here's a question that I believe would help us with this text. Did Jesus really mean for them to feed the thousands? <clears throat> 
Was he maybe, maybe kidding? <laughs> Why don't you feed him? You know, was he maybe kidding? Had a bit of a joke on his face. Was he, was he being sarcastic? Why don't you feed him? He always looked to me. You know, what was the tone of that moment? Is he being serious? Absolutely. Is he maybe in that very rattling question, jarring question for these disciples, is he maybe calling them into an uncertain moment, a life of greater risk, where greater faith is required from them, where without a doubt they step into a scarier moment than what is normal? Much more supernatural than anything they thought following Jesus was going to be like. Because we have a preconceived idea of the level of risk we call to when we follow Jesus. And this surprised them this moment. You see, it's a powerful moment. I think it's a very unsettling to be asked into a moment that doesn't have clear answers. That we're not feeling equipped for. But like it or not, they have now been given, these disciples, through that question, through that, through that invite by Jesus, they've now been given a choice. Let's recognize it's come at an inconvenient time, this choice. It's come at an inconvenient time. They just returned, as I said, from a mission trip. They want to rest. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you know what it's like the day after. You just want to rest. You want to debrief. You want to be with family and just put your feet up a little bit and relax. Their agenda, however, is interrupted by Jesus, inviting them to do something that they simply, in all honesty, cannot do. I want to ask you, if you, if you could capture and fully relive one moment of your life, if you could, if you could push, press the reset button, go back to a moment in your life and relive it, which moment would you choose? You know, would it be a moment of regret? Yes, I wish I could, I wish I could handle that moment differently. Wish I didn't get into that habit through that first moment. Wish I didn't say that. Like I did. I don't know. Maybe a moment of regret. Maybe a moment of celebration. I'd love to live that wedding day with my wife again. But just the first one, you know? I loved it. Every part of it. Love to go back and just live it again, except the photographs. They were a pain. Now, maybe there's a moment where, where courage was required from you and you stepped up to it and you found the faith that came with filling that courageous moment and you want to go back there and go, yes, it was awesome. Or a moment where courage failed you. You're like, mm. which moment would you relive? You know, when we look back at our lives, and the trajectory of the course of our lives, oftentimes the most meaningful moments started off just as simple choices. A choice was presented to us, and it took us one way or another. Do I need to engage in this need or problem, or don't I? Do I have the courage to have this conversation, or don't I? Do I lie? Or do I tell the truth? 
Do I make the jump or do I just procrastinate a little bit more? You know, the, there's no idea of the ramifications of the choices we make. There's, there, there's so much potential in these little moments called choices, so much power in these moments. We know God has created us with the power to choose. When God made humanity, humanity in Genesis 2 and 3, He placed them in a garden of choices. That's one of the major themes of that whole picture of the Garden of Eden. The fact that choices land very powerfully in our lives. As part of the deal of being human is this fundamental act of choice. Regularly, throughout the day, we'll run into forks in the road. Do I act gently or do I just toss my toys angrily? Do I see myself as the victim? Or do I step up to the mark with courage and humility? Do I tell the truth? Or do I hide some of the truth? Daily we're going through these kinds of choices. When I see injustice in the world, do I jump in to be part of the solution? Or do I just assume again, as is my default option, that someone else is going to take care of it? fact is, we have no idea where our lives would be if we had made different choices along the way. Sometimes those forks are just little minor forks, you know, like a little bump in the road. But sometimes, sometimes they're major. Sometimes the choices we make are mundane. Sometimes they are hectic. They're profound. But it's difficult to know in the moment which is which. Is this a little moment or a, or a life-defining moment? It's hard to know. And sometimes... Sometimes, in these little moments, God is actually calling us into deeper water. And He gives us a choice to choose greater risk. We just know we have to have a choice to make. And that's where we find these disciples in this moment now. They're at a fork in the road. Jesus has said to them, you feed them. And they have a moment here. They've got to make a choice. What are they going to choose to do? Are they going to obey the prompting of Jesus and attempt to do something that seems crazy? I don't know how to go about it. And that's one of the problems here. If I was the disciples at that moment and I simply went by Jesus' word, where would I start? What would I do? So do they choose, choose to act and do something that seems crazy? Or are they going to say to Jesus, not a chance. We can't do that. It's going to cost too much a year's wage. That's just plain ridiculous. Which road will they take? And we know the answer, don't we? Are they going to seize the moment in some incredible way that we probably at this point don't know what, what it would have looked like? Or are they going to enter into the unknown or are they going to play it safe? So let's carry on reading that text. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that will take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much bread and give it to them and eat? You can hear Jesus changing gears. How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the gro in the green grass. And they sat down in groups in, of hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves and then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to all the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 
12 baskets of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five. 12 baskets of loaves, of leftovers. One basket for each disciple. See, I think this miracle was just as much for the disciples as it was for the crowd that was there that day. They were supposed to learn something in this moment. There was a lesson that Jesus was imparting here. They had the incredible opportunity to witness Jesus do something amazing with their eyes. But could they have missed an opportunity of doing good, of doing something amazing themselves through the power Jesus gave? Did they miss an opportunity? Missing an opportunity. I confess, the older I get, the more those words worry me. The opportunity came, the choice came, but because they didn't feel that they had what it takes, because they didn't feel like they had the resources to do what they were prompted to do, they just didn't act. And in a sense, they missed a moment. Jesus had given them the ball to do something, to act, but they passed it back to Jesus and said, we don't want the ball. They choose to sit on the bench rather than taking a shot at the goal. I wonder as I look at my, my, at my life, I wonder how many opportunities I have missed for the kingdom's sake. <clears throat> you know, how much of a price will my naturally conservative nature demand of me? An opportunity arises, but I'm so zoned into my to-do list, I'm so caught up with my schedule, I'm so preoccupied with the smaller things in life that I don't even notice the opportunity in front of my eyes. Or because it comes at me at an inconvenient time, I just sort of miss it or downplay it. Or because it just looks too big, I laugh it off, even though God might be saying, yeah, I'll walk with you. I'll support you. I'll help you. I'll, bring, I'll, I'll make something happen with that food. Wonder, I wonder what I'm missing in life. Get on reading. Verse 45 onwards. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. <clears throat> and after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And he got some of that quiet, restful time that he was looking for earlier. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land, and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, so it was a good couple of hours later, he went out to them walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And we know just after that verse, if you look at a different gospel, that it was in those kinds of moments, somewhere there, that Peter got out the boat and actually walked to Jesus. And then looked at the waves and, you know, got worried and started to sink and so on. Then Jesus climbs into the boat with him, with them, and the wind died down. And they're completely amazed. Get this. Here's, a, here's another clangor verse that I 
bet you many of us have never seen before. It says, for they had not understood about the loaves. How did that get back in the picture here? They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Imagine your heart being described as hardened and my heart. Let's try and pack a little bit the nature of that verse. That last verse, in the light of what has just happened, I mean, storms, walking on water and all that kind of stuff. That last verse is almost a throwaway line, isn't it? I wonder what the lesson about the lows was what they, that they needed to learn that was still echoing on into this moment. Let's be honest. This has been an incredibly hectic day for these disciples. You know, coming back from a mission trip, seeing Jesus feeding the 5,000, now walking on the water during a storm, and then Jesus calms a storm. It's been a hectic 24 hours. Crazy. And Jesus just, in all of these moments, I mean, it's overwhelming, overstimulation. Jesus just keeps on surprising them with his incredible power and amazing life that he has called them to be part of. Because get this, these moments with the 5,000 and the walking on the water was not just a show that Jesus was putting on. In both of those miraculous occasions, Jesus invited the disciples to be part of it. Big difference. This isn't a show. There's a real part of an invite implicit in these stories. And again, as I look at my life, you're Honestly, I think I would have been the one saying, we can't feed them, Jesus. We just don't have the cash. It'll take a whole pension. I don't know. Whole year's salary. And I'd have to front up to Cindy in order to feed this bunch of people. Not a chance, Lord. Not a chance, Lord. No ways, Lord. And a little later, I probably would have been the ones in the boat saying, we're going to die in the storm. It's finished and clear. It's done. We're out of here. And I honestly battle in my consideration of being in those kinds of moments. I battle to live on the cutting edge of a faith-filled life. My default option is just to play it safe and in the safety to discover God's will. Yes, there it is. God's will is defined by the safetiness of it. To take the wise but almost always risk-free path instead. I suspect that's what Jesus meant when he says that their hearts were hardened. Hardened against a supernatural life. Hardened against a faith that doesn't always make sense. Hardened to the extent of only looking at the measurables as if that is the only way to assess a moment. In many ways, I guess I've made choices that have left me with a very tame kind of Christianity. Maybe I shouldn't expect more. This is a life I'm in. This is the rut I've chosen. And so maybe I should just settle into it. And I need to ask the question, is this something that we as a community might have to grapple with? You know, maybe our default option to dismiss God's promptings because they come at inconvenient times is blunting something in our lives and in our spirit, in our soul that shouldn't be dulled. 
You know, when confronted with injustice or need in the world, do we too quickly tend to speak ourselves out of a response because, in our opinion, we don't have the resources or we don't have the abilities or we don't have the gifting or the language we're often used as Christians. We don't have the calling to step into that zone. Maybe it's all just too scary. I mean, as someone once said, and I thought they said it brilliantly, maybe it's just all too scary. I want to see miracles in my life. Amen? But I don't want to actually be in a place that requires them. And so we corner ourselves. When I became a Christian 30-something years ago, and I longed to be used by God, and I still do, I honestly do. I just don't know how, in many senses, to step up to the mark this, this text introduces to me. I'd walk up to strangers with a message of the good news. I'd give up holidays to be part of a ministry team. I pray for and expect massive movements of moments with God. I'd invest in prayer as if it was actually a real thing, not just a fringe exercise of my faith. And as I consider my soul journey now, I confess I find myself way too much room to the journey that is safe instead. Minimal conflict, minimal disappointment, minimal risk, minimal effort, if at all possible. Minimal. And so I've come to suspect that living a safe life is an incredible temptation. I think not only for me. I think for many of us. I strongly reckon that, reckon that potentially this is the kryptonite. This is the ultimate weapon in the enemy's hand as he battles against our soul in this day and age. The security of not having to worry about our next paycheck, of not having to worry about what's going to happen when we retire one day, or the fact that very automatically another plate of food lands on the table in front of us all without fail, those are blessings. And let me just say quickly, those are genuinely blessings. They are blessings. I'm not trying to undermine that fact. But those are blessings that many of us might have a tendency towards idolizing if we're not careful. I'll never forget my first pastoral visit at the church. I've been here literally, I'd say, two days. I think I was 23 years old at the time. Are there any 23-year-olds in the church today? Oh, there we go. Please, bud, why don't you just, just be courageous. Stand up, take your mask off. Let's have a look, good look at you. Handsome fellow, hey? <laughs> awesome. Thanks, bud. Just, 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 maybe just stand for a second more. Just for a second more. Okay. And, and what I'm going to say now, I promise you I'm not trying to diss you. Right. Okay. Um. So I was 23 years old. I had a theological degree tucked under my belt. But to be honest, when I look back now, I had very little life experience. Okay? You can sit. Thanks, brother. Very little life experience for myself. This guy's probably had much more by now. He's wise. He's sagacious. I wasn't. At that stage, I was young and innocent. 23 years old. I was asked to visit a couple that had just experienced a miscarriage of their first baby. To go visit a family who had just lost a baby. And I remember driving to their house wondering, what on earth should I say to these people? I mean, I wasn't married, certainly. I didn't even have a girlfriend that, at that time, I think. So, so by every single measure, 
except I did have a theological degree because we know that sorts you out for life, for every scenario, whatever, right? By every single measure, I was utterly out of my depth. By God's grace, I believe my awkward visit and my prayers that day brought some comfort into that house. Remember the lady saying thank you. She was very gracious to me. Could have had a hundred reasons why stepping into that uncomfortable, awkward, ill-equipped zone. hundred reasons why I wouldn't have to do that. But sometimes we're called to blunder into moments that leave us feeling that we only have two fishes and a couple of loaves to feed the thousands. We're called into those moments. That's what Jesus did with his disciples that day. And when he was on the boat, when they were on the boat, he called them. We're standing on the brink of another year full of the unknown, and for some of us, a year full of threats, to be honest. The nature of the last two years may lead us to hope for more than anything else. Just a level of safety, Lord, and normality and comfort, regardless of the call of Jesus. Remember, the lessons of the loaves is very possibly that God calls us into a larger, more supernatural life than what we can ever imagine by asking us to do what we cannot do with things that we don't have. And that certainly doesn't line up with the risk-free faith. Whether we call to help in a small way, drawing alongside someone that is hurting or checking on a, a colleague that's not looking up to scratch, or something massive and complicated like being part of a solution to the issues of poverty or gender-based violence or discrimination, regardless whether it's small or big, the assessment of our abilities and our character and the tallying of our resources should never talk us out of what we believe God is calling us to do. We cannot predict the events of this coming year, but we can learn how to use the choices we are given in the best, most godly ways. And that does mean that, does mean that our faith will sometimes stretch us willingly into risky zones with no clear answers and very few snap solutions. If it never does that, then I wonder if our faith is of the kind of caliber that it needs to be. Faith is meant to be an adventure. Not just a comfy blankie, huh? So I want to wrap up very quickly now and just say I want to leave you in a moment of uncertainty at the end of the sermon. It's a weird place for a, sermon, a preacher to try to get you to. But I want to leave you in a, in a moment of uncertainty at the end of the sermon. There was a moment between Jesus' invite to the disciples to feed the crowds and him providing the food that must have been full of questions and uncertainty and you know, unsettling for those disciples, a, a difficult place to be. The invite was there, the solution wasn't found yet, and the other disciples were like, what, is he serious? That's so uncertain, so difficult. But, but, but in Jesus' economy, it was good for them to be there. That's why he called them into that place of uncertainty.
It was good for their faith to mature through that moment. It was good for their, for their ministry, for their character, for the trajectory of their life. It was good to step into that moment of uncertainty, which is why Jesus called them there. I don't know how 2022 will turn out for you. I don't know how to live a supernatural life like, those, that, like the text is, is calling us to. I, I really wish I knew how to do that. I need to be led in that. Feel free to come teach me on that one. But I do know that living with uncertainty is not always a bad thing. And that at times, it's the best thing to choose. Because that's where God calls us to be. What an exciting way to enter 2022. This invitation to do the supernatural. Things we cannot do with our own strength, without resources. So how can we? How can we be part of miracles? We've got to remember that we serve a God of miracles. Jesus has the authority and the power to feed the 5,000, to calm the storm, and so much more. And the awesome thing is He lives in us. This miracle-working God lives in us. So Thomas Kelly, an author, prays, Lord Make my life a miracle. Just think of those words, those powerful words. Lord, make my life a miracle. Doesn't this world need miracles? The hungry need to be fed. The jobless need work. Marriages need healing. Addictions, people who are addicted need to be set free. In your life, I'm sure you're needing a miracle. Lord, the one who has authority, all power, we pray and we ask you to make my life a miracle. What an exciting way to enter the new year. Looking expectantly for God to do the supernatural in and through us. And so let's pause and pray. Close your eyes. Be brave enough to pray this morning. Lord, make my life a miracle. Lord, make my life a miracle. Amen. May you go into 2022 knowing that the God of miracles goes with you, holding your hand and look forward to seeing what he does in your life. Have a wonderful day.